Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 21st of January 2024, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, Uriah the Hittite. So it has been one of the major scandals of our times. Hundreds of innocent and indeed hard-working and conscientious sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses receiving the most appalling treatment from those in positions of power. Whether it is the wealth of Fujitsu, the dishonesty and corruption of post office executives or the complacency of ministers, the post office scandal is one of the most terrible examples we've seen of those without power being treated incredibly badly by those with too much. And more than once, as we've heard about this story, and I imagine virtually all of you have, as this story has been reported and we've heard more about it, it's become quite common to hear the fight back by people like Alan Bates and Joe Hamilton, described as a David and Goliath scenario. Now, this is a fairly obvious reference to the most famous story involving King David, when, as a young shepherd boy, years before he became king, armed only with a sling, he defeated the Philistine giant, Goliath. It's a stirring and popular story, because it's all about the victory of a small person in the face of seemingly overwhelming power. And yet, arguably, there's another story involving King David that suits the post office saga even better. And it's the one that was read to us earlier. It's the story of David years later, now he's established as king, and now he's got enormous power disposing of someone powerless in the most ruthless manner imaginable. We've heard the story read to us by Andrew just now. Probably a lot of us know elements of it already, but here's a brief recap. David one day sees a woman bathing from his palace roof. He has her brought to him, and despite being told that she's the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah the Hittite, David has sex with her. Later on, Bathsheba discovers that she's pregnant. She sends word to the king. David's response is to summon Uriah back from the front where he's been fighting in his army and encourage him to go back to his home, hoping that the child that's on its way can be passed off as Uriah's rather than his. But because of Uriah's integrity, because of his commitment to his fellow soldiers, that plan doesn't work. And so David sends a message back to the army commander Joab, ironically carried by Uriah himself, telling Joab to make sure that Uriah is basically killed. And that is precisely what then happens. It's a really terrible story, isn't it? It's an appalling story of injustice, corruption, and the abuse of power. And there are two things that make it particularly dreadful. You might think it's dreadful as it is, but there are two things that make it particularly awful. The first and most obvious is that King David wasn't just a king anointed by God. That would be bad enough if just that was the case. But he is described in this manner in the Bible, isn't he? He is described as a man after God's own heart. Now, there's various debates about what that precisely might mean, which are relevant to our sermon this morning. But taken at face value, it's talking seemingly about the quality 
of David. The very reason that David succeeded Saul as king was because of Saul's disobedience to God. David is the great hero of the Old Testament, isn't he? He's the man associated with 73 of those 150 psalms, some of which we looked at not long ago. And yet, he does this terrible thing. But there's another thing as well that makes it just as dreadful, perhaps even more so. Uriah the Hittite was, as that title suggests, an outsider who had come to God. When Israel conquered the Promised Land, there were seven tribes living within it. And these are those tribes. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Hittites. Now, Rahab, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, was a Canaanite who was incorporated by her faith into God's people. And Israel's whole calling was to be a kingdom of priests. Here is the passage where in Exodus God outlines his calling to Israel. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What was the point of that? Well, the point was that Israel, by the way she lived, would draw others from outside of Israel further towards him. Isaiah later on put it this way. Isaiah puts it like this. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Why? So my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And the reason we know that this is relevant here is because of the meaning of Uriah's name. Uriah's name means this. Uriah means the Lord is my light. And everything that we hear about this man in this story emphasizes how devout he was, emphasizes his obedience to God. Uriah is very servant-hearted. He goes and literally sleeps with David's servants, doesn't he? He is determined to do everything to honor God and his place within God's people. Uriah, in short, is just the sort of person that Israel and its king should have been encouraging in his walk with God. But instead, Uriah's rights and those of his wife Bathsheba were completely disregarded, weren't they? Bathsheba probably had very little option about having sex with the king. It probably wasn't something where she had any agency at all. And Uriah, when he gets in the way through no fault of his own, no actual knowledge of his own, he never really knows what's going on, he is simply disposed of. And the worst thing of all is that Uriah's status does appear to have been instrumental in what happens to him. You see, David, in other parts of his life, was scrupulous about not shedding Israelite blood. When he's being hunted down by Saul before he becomes king and he has the opportunity to kill Saul, he doesn't take it. Later on, when he's cursed by Shimei as he leaves Jerusalem after Absalom's rebellion, the soldiers say, should we kill him? David says, no. You know, he's a member of Israel. It seemingly is significant at that point. But here, as elsewhere in the story of David, because it's not the only example, the blood of this Gentile, even one who's faithfully following God, is regarded as worthless. And sadly, it is a common perspective. The post office scandal has shocked us for many reasons, but perhaps the biggest reason is the seeming indifference of those with power towards the supposed little people, the people who really don't count because they're not of major importance. 
the way that these people have been regarded, frankly, as disposable. And in this story, it's actually not just David. There are others who collude with this as well. His army commander, Joab, most obviously, but probably plenty of other people simply show indifference because the life of this Gentile outsider simply didn't matter. But of course, Uriah's life mattered to God, didn't it? Mattered deeply to God. God isn't actually mentioned throughout most of this chapter. We hear this story without God being mentioned throughout most of it. And that's significant because God isn't really being invoked in any of this until we get to the last verse, the very last verse that Andrew read in that reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. After Bathsheba's time of mourning for Uriah is finished, there's no reason to think that wasn't genuine on her part, David has her brought to his palace and he makes her his wife. Again, we don't know whether Bathsheba really had any say at all in that. But right at the end of the chapter, we see these very significant words. God hasn't been mentioned all the way through the chapter and now suddenly he is. But the thing that David had done, the writer tells us, displeased the Lord. And that's because every human life matters to God, particularly those of the vulnerable and outsiders. The prophet Nathan, not the youth worker Nathan, he's quite different, don't confuse them, they're rather similar in some ways, but the prophet Nathan visits David, exposes his sin, and David is repentant as that picture tries to sum up. Psalm 51 is the psalm associated with this. But the judgment that comes upon David and upon Israel as a result is still severe. Nathan tells David that the sword will never depart from your house. Nathan tells David further that shame will come upon his household. He's told that his son, the son that has been conceived uh, through his uh, adultery or his abuse of Bathsheba, we're told that son will die. Nathan says that this will happen because David has despised God, but he also says these very significant words, and here they are. He says... But because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Those words there are really significant. Israel and its king, remember, were meant to reveal God to the nations. They were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And yet what David had done here, through his action, had done the precise opposite. Now, we don't know whether that's intended to mean that the pagan nations heard about this and had more contempt for Israel. It's more that somehow spiritually, this either summed up or it became fully aware to them that Israel was the opposite from being that light to the nations that she was called to be. And it's such a betrayal of Israel's vocation, this action by David, that it basically starts the slide of the entire nation to disaster. You see, David's reign is the high point for Israel. It's got a massive empire, there's a lot of wealth and so on. That carries on in many ways under his son Solomon, who succeeds him. But basically, fairly soon, it all falls apart. The nation of Israel becomes divided into two. It sins more and more, and as a result, it's more and more oppressed, and eventually the climax is it's taken into exile. And although there's a geographical return from exile, a great deal of the symptoms of exile continue 
in the New Testament period, most obviously being oppressed and dominated by foreign powers by the New Testament time, that's Rome. Israel, in other words, by New Testament times, is still in that state that really comes in consequence to this action of David. You see, God made great promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about him having a son who would reign forever. And yet what David did a few chapters later in 2 Samuel 11 to this innocent Gentile outsider seems to have completely scuppered God's plans. It seems to have completely wrecked everything that God had in mind. And it might have done, but for the coming of Jesus. Jesus, as we know from the Christmas stories, came from the line of David. Jesus, as we know from the Christmas stories, came to be born in the town of David, Bethlehem. He came to sit on David's throne. He came to be the son of David. And in the process, he came to bear that curse that had come through David's actions. In that passage that Claire read to us from Paul's letter to the Romans, it speaks about Jesus being descended from David. And the translation didn't really quite convey the way that I think it's meant to come across. Because Paul in that passage describes Jesus as being descended from David according to the flesh. Now, other parts of the Bible use flesh in a more neutral sense, most obviously uh, John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's a positive way of putting things. But the word flesh within Paul's writing always has a negative connotation. It speaks of humanity in its state of sin and corruption. And Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. Now what does that mean? Well, when we look at the way that Jesus lived, it was the very opposite of showing indifference to the little people, wasn't it? The way Jesus lived was the very opposite of being indifferent to those without power. We see the exact opposite. Let's look at a few pictures. Jesus spent time with people who were powerless. Jesus gave them a dignity and a love that came from nowhere else, that they didn't expect to receive, but they received in abundance from him. And when Jesus died, it wasn't sort of separate from all of that. It wasn't that he was doing something really completely different. It was very much related. It was precisely because he was descended from David according to the flesh that when Jesus died, God's judgment could be executed upon the sin and evil that had accumulated within Israel through David's treatment of Uriah and everything else that had sprung from this. And it's very significant what the result is. What's revealed to be the effect of all this when Jesus rises from the dead three days later? Well, when that happens, the curse upon the Davidic house and upon Israel had been removed. And how do we know that? Because fairly soon the Gentiles and everyone who'd previously been considered outsiders were finally able to come to God and become part of his people through belonging to Jesus that's what happens in the New Testament, doesn't it? That's the big contrast with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we do see some outsiders coming to God. That's the very reason we're having this series. But it's fitful and it's temporary and it, you know, is messy. By the time we get to the New Testament period, following Jesus' death and following his resurrection, showing what has been achieved through that death, finally we get Gentiles flooding in to God's people. 
Why? Because of the death of Jesus and what that achieved through judgment being executed upon that sin that had come through down through the Davidic line. Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh so that could be dealt with. And no longer do the Gentiles just look with contempt upon God's people. Jesus has stood in the place of Israel and done what Israel was always intended to do, to be the light to the Gentiles. So St. Paul puts it this way. St. Paul, these famous words in his letter to the Galatians, says this. There's neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, we could say. Greek's used in a very sort of inclusive way there. Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in the Messiah. In other words, Christ Jesus. See, at last, Israel's vocation to be a light to the Gentiles, to people just like Uriah the Hittite, had been fulfilled through Israel's Messiah, the son of David, who unlike, who rather like David's original son in the story had died because of David's sin, but then unlike that original son, had rose again with that sin having been dealt with and its curse removed. So what should we take from this story and its role within the wider narrative of the Bible? It's a really strong reminder that following Jesus is the very opposite of using power to oppress the powerless. One of the most shocking aspects of the post office scandal to many people was that Paula Venels, the CEO of the post office during the worst parts of this saga, is an ordained minister in the Church of England. She was shortlisted to become Bishop of London, apparently. Now, we can respond to that with horror. It can be all part of wanting heads to roll and so on. But probably, and accountability is absolutely vital and important, but so is the self-reflection that makes us look at ourselves in the light of that. Because I think what that shows is that any of us, committed Christians as much as anyone, are capable of turning a blind eye to the rights of people without power when we become too focused on our own security and position. Very often what happens in these sorts of scandals is that people are seen as caring so much about the well-being of the institution, whether it's the NHS or whether it's the BBC or whether it's, uh, in this case, the post office or indeed the Church of England, that they put the well-being of that institution ahead of people. But even that's too positive. It's not really putting the well-being of the institution ahead of the well-being of people. It's putting their vested interest in that institution ahead of the well-being of people. But it's so easy for this to be something that happens. David doesn't really start off this way. He turns out this way. And it's so easy. It probably is true of people like Paula Venels. I doubt she took the attitude that she took later on, earlier on in her life. I don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. It's also about forgetting that God is on the side of the powerless and calls his followers to be on the side of the powerless as well. You see, David knew that truth once. When David fought Goliath, he knew that truth. That's what gave him the confidence to defy Goliath. He knew that God was on the side of the powerless, those committed to him, 
against seemingly overwhelming power, but David had forgotten it by the time he disposed of Uriah. And recent events have shown us just how easy it is for that to happen. In the Bible, it would be nice if all the characters got better and better as they got older and finished well. Usually, the precise opposite. Often they start in such a way as to have real promise. And then as time goes on, that fades and gets corrupted and so on. And it's a warning to us, this story of David and Uriah the Hittite, to make sure that a similar development doesn't happen in our case. But what Jesus putting this right means is that followers of Jesus will try and show the very same attitude as him to those without power. We'll prioritise showing such people God's love in an affirming, empowering, non-patronising manner because we'll get that that's displaying God's light to the world more clearly than anything else that we can do. And there will be opportunities for us to do this every day in our work or in other parts of our lives. To show God's love and therefore God's light to those without power. Now it may not seem particularly strategic use of our time, but it will be. Because it will be fulfilling the calling that God has always made to his people to lead outsiders further towards him by displaying God's love. So let's take time to consider those people with whom we're in regular contact, who are the most powerless. The people with the least agency. What's our attitude towards them? What are our actions in regard to them? What things, large and small, could we be doing to give them a dignity and an experience of how much God loves them? Because when God's love comes to people who don't expect to receive it, the results can be amazing. Think of that New Testament story of Zacchaeus, someone who was despised and he experiences God's love and it's transforming. He doesn't expect to see it coming and when it does, it has an extraordinary impact. Now we try to do this in the mission of this church. That's the rationale behind so much of what we're trying to do. All the way from our work with our smallest children at this church, the, the vision is, the, why, the reason welcoming is so important, the idea is that children and everyone who walks into this church from the moment they come in receives a warm welcome that assures them that we're delighted that they're present. But it goes beyond just the children in this church. The rationale of our widows group, Half Shares, which now has two different sections, the rationale of our four cinema clubs, our lunch club grapevine, which I speak quite a lot about. They're all trying to show, as followers of Jesus seek to run and participate in those various activities, that we're displaying God's particular love for the powerless, because that's what Jesus has called us to do. It may be hard work, and it doesn't always work out the way we hope it will, but it's at the absolute heart of what God has called this church to be. So, let's remember this sorry tale of David and his treatment of Uriah and Bathsheba. The story of David and Goliath is rightly famous, 
This story is one we'd probably rather forget most of the time, but it's in the Bible for a crucial reason. Like the post office saga, it is a deeply unpleasant story. But it's also an example, like the post office saga probably, of how easy it is for us to lose our way in how God wants us to be living. But the major value of the story of David and Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba in the context of the whole of the Bible is actually more significant. Remember that act, that genealogy that starts the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The New Testament starts off with a family tree, doesn't it? And it shows how David is descended from David, uh, sorry, Jesus is uh, descended from David and also further back Abraham and lots of other people. And there are five women in that genealogy. One of them's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other four are four women from the Old Testament who all, through either their ethnicity or their conduct, were very much outsiders. You've got Rahab, we heard about a couple of weeks ago. You've got Tamar, you've got Ruth, and you've got, she's not even named, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's talking about Bathsheba. And what it's intended to show is that Jesus came to be the fulfillment of everything within that story of Israel. Not just the shiny bits, but the terrible bits as well. And Jesus came to redeem that terrible sin committed against someone who Israel should have been leading to God and her king should have been leading the way on that. And that curse that entered into the Davidic line and into Israel was then dealt with when Jesus died. And that means that the story takes on a positive role in the fulfilment of Jesus' commission. And we can be encouraged by that positive role. It can encourage us to stay faithful followers of the Jesus who came to remove that sin of David and enable everyone who belongs to Jesus, everyone who belongs to him, to be restored into a people committed to sharing his love precisely so that outsiders, people just like Uriah the Hittite, can come to God. Let's pray for a moment. Let's think of someone we know perhaps we're in contact with regularly who appears to be lacking in the power that others have. Someone perhaps without agency, perhaps someone difficult to love. And let's think what God is calling us to be in regard to that person. Father God, we thank you that Jesus came for everyone with a particular priority to bring your love to the powerless. Would you help us to act like that as well? To shine your light to those currently outside of your people so that they recognize that they're loved, they recognize that they're wanted. Help us to do this as a church, help us to do it as individuals. Make us a missionary people who will display your light to those outside of your church so that they'll be drawn in through your love. Help us to do this through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.